You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt of Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can find out more, including all the back episodes, at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find there some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. This episode, we're going to look at one of the most recent attacks on Indian sovereignty, uh, Indian culture, and Indian families. Um, At the same time that the House in Canada unanimously supported a resolution declaring that the Indian boarding schools uh, that operated in the past there were a form of genocide. We have a case coming to the Supreme Court in the U.S. trying to reduce the rights of Indian families to maintain their culture by keeping their families intact and not losing their children to be raised by others. First up is a piece written by Theodora Simon. This is published at ACLU.org. Since European settlers arrived on the shores of what is now known as the United States, federal and state governments intent on seizing Indian lands have sought to undermine and threaten the existence of tribes through the forced separation and assimilation of Native children. By severing Native children from their families, tribes, and culture. Colonizers believed they could stamp out indigeneity and erase tribal people altogether. As with any nation, the future ceases to exist if children are prevented from carrying on the languages, traditions, and knowledge passed down from each generation to the next. This tool of assimilation and genocide has been wielded against tribal nations and native children repeatedly throughout history and it is happening again now. The Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, a law that aims to protect Native children from forced removal from their families, tribes, and culture, and preserve tribal sovereignty, is currently under attack and at risk of being overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Congress passed ICWA in 1978, to address the nationwide crisis of state child welfare agencies tearing Native children from their families and placing them in non-Native homes in an attempt to force Native children to assimilate and adopt white cultural norms. Before ICWA, public and private agencies were removing 25 to 35 percent of Native American and Alaskan Native children from their homes, and 85 percent of those children were placed in non-Native households. Overwhelming evidence has found that being removed from homes and disconnected from culture, tradition, and identity profoundly harms Native children. The Indian Child Welfare Act requires state courts to make active efforts to keep Native families together and to prioritize the placement of Native children within their families and within tribal communities, where their cultural identities will be understood and celebrated. This November, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in Brackeen v. Holland, a case that challenges the constitutionality of ICWA. If the Supreme Court rules ICWA unconstitutional, it could have devastating consequences for Native children, families, and tribes, while simultaneously putting the existence of tribes in jeopardy. That's why the ACLU and the ACLUs of Northern California, Alaska, Arizona, Maine, Montana, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming 
filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court today urging the court to uphold the constitutionality of ICWA. ICWA aims to address the forced separation of Native children and families and represents a small step towards acknowledging the centuries of genocidal violence that underpin this case. Beginning in the early 1800s, the architects of the Federal Indian Boarding School Program designed the program to erase the indigenous identities of Native people. The government snatched children as young as four years old from their families and sent them to militarized boarding school institutions designed to destroy their native identities and culture, often hundreds of miles away from their tribal homelands. For more on the boarding school history and program in the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii, see the previous episode of You Can't Be Neutral, where I cover the federal report on boarding schools in the U.S. Any markers of their indigeneity, language, clothing, traditional hairstyles, and even their names were prohibited in these institutions. Indian boarding schools were not simply places where Native youth were stripped of their culture. Many children died at these schools from outright neglect, malnutrition, untreated illness, and as a result of physical violence carried out against them. While boarding schools were largely shuttered by the mid-1900s, think of that, the mid-1900s, we're talking like the 1950s, the philosophy lived on. Native children were better off living with white families, even at the expense of their mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. In 1958, the Bureau of Indian Affairs created the Indian Adoption Project. The project's explicit goal was to assimilate Native children into white culture through adoption and the intentional destruction of Indigenous family units and tribal communities. So this is a a very common um, pattern when we look at um, really the most heinous and uh, harmful structures in our in our society and in our culture when the pressure builds up enough against them and they cease to be the underlying elements the underlying goals don't stop they don't end they just evolve they get a a prettier name and they evolve into a new format to carry out the same white supremacist function the same white supremacist goals uh with with a smile instead of you know with a gun during this era and continuing today practices rooted in ethnocentric stereotypes operating under the guise of quote child protection there's that happy smile they put on the on the project, resulted in the baseless separation of thousands of Native children from their families and homelands. It is incomprehensibly heinous that in order to build the country we all live in today, federal and state governments targeted Native children, robbing those children, their families, their communities, and their tribal nations of everything it meant to be Indigenous. Brackeen v. Holland is the largest threat to Native children, families, and tribes before the Supreme Court in our lifetimes. If ICWA is overturned, states would once again be allowed to tear Native children from their families, tribes, and culture, while simultaneously threatening tribes' very existence. The legal arguments made by the plaintiffs challenging ICWA and Brackeen undermine key tenets of federal Indian law and threaten many other laws upholding tribal sovereignty. Tribal sovereignty is the right of tribes, 574 currently recognized by the federal government, to make and be governed by their own laws. This sovereignty is inherent as native nations existed long before the creation of the United States. Hundreds of treaties have guaranteed tribal nations the right to self-govern. Through these treaties, native nations gave up their right to millions of acres of land that would become the United States in exchange for promises to tribes, including the guarantee that lands, quote, reserved for tribes would be governed by the tribes in perpetuity. The outcome of Brackeen v. Holland could put centuries-long legal precedent upholding tribal sovereignty, including tribes' right and ability to preserve their unique cultural identities, raise their own children, 
and govern themselves in jeopardy. Native families have a right to stay together, to care for their children, and to preserve tribal culture by ensuring access to their cultural identity, language, and heritage. The Supreme Court must protect this right and uphold the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And here is the amicus brief filed by the ACLU to the Supreme Court in the case of Brackeen v. Holland. The American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, is a nationwide nonprofit, nonpartisan organization with nearly 2 million members dedicated to the principles of liberty and equality embodied in the Constitution and this nation's civil rights laws. The ACLU of Alaska, ACLU of Arizona, ACLU of Maine, ACLU of Montana, ACLU of Nebraska, ACLU of New Mexico, ACLU of North Dakota, ACLU of Northern California, ACLU of Oklahoma, ACLU of South Dakota, ACLU of Texas, ACLU of Utah, ACLU of Washington, and ACLU of Wyoming are state-based affiliates of the ACLU who are engaged in indigenous justice work. In furtherance of their mission, the ACLU and its affiliates have supported federal laws designed to preserve Indian families and respect the cultural heritage of Indian tribes. The ACLU and its affiliates have also advocated in favor of children's rights and a child's interest in family integrity. The proper resolution of this case is, therefore, a matter of significant importance to the ACLU, its affiliates, and their members. Introduction and Summary of the Argument Throughout this nation's history, Congress has regulated Indian affairs as a matter of tribal political sovereignty, not race. The Constitution itself recognizes, quote, Indian tribes as sovereigns and directs Congress to regulate commerce and make treaties with Indian tribes. And just as the Constitution recognizes Indian as a political, not racial category, so has this court. For decades, the court has clearly and consistently held that federal legislation with respect to Indian tribes, although relating to Indians as such, is not based upon impermissible racial classifications, as noted in United States v. Antelope. That principle governs the equal protection claims in this case. The two Indian Child Welfare Act provisions, challenged as violations of equal protection, regulate Indian affairs by reference to a child's connection to a federally recognized Indian tribe, a political sovereign, not a racial group. The first challenge provision defines an Indian child as a child who is either a member of an Indian tribe or is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe and is a biological child of a member of an Indian tribe. Nothing in this definition turns on race. It does not matter what race the child or the child's parent may be. What matters is membership in a federally recognized Indian tribe or eligibility for such membership. Plaintiffs argue that tribal membership, ancestry, and descent are simply proxies for race. ICWA's definition is expressly based on lineal descent, that is, on race, is their argument. But ICWA far more precisely and narrowly defines those for whom it applies, and it does so by reference to political membership or eligibility, not race. Thus, ICWA excludes members of hundreds of Indian tribes the federal government does not recognize because those individuals, regardless of their race, are not part of the relevant political entity. Similarly, ICWA excludes descendants of tribe members who do not have a parent who is a member of a tribe. The second challenge provision grants a preference in placing an Indian child first to a member of the child's extended family, whether or not they are Indian and then to other members of the Indian child's tribe, and finally, to other Indian families. But this too turns not on race, but on family ties or tribal membership. Congress expressly defined Indian as used in ICWA to refer to tribal membership, not race. Because the challenge provisions are 
quote, political rather than racial in nature. They are subject to the rational basis standard of review, as pointed out in Morton v. Mankari. These ICWA provisions easily survive such review. Indeed, even if the challenge provisions were subject to strict scrutiny, they are narrowly tailored to further several compelling government interests and as such are constitutionally sound. The challenge provisions, one, protect the best interests of Indian children, and two, promote the stability and security of Indian tribes. Both interests are compelling. To advance the best interests of Indian children, Congress passed ICWA to respond to shocking disparities in placement rates for Indians and non-Indians, which have resulted in grievous harm to the safety and well-being of many Indian children removed from their communities. Congress found that those disparities reflected the disturbing history of removing Indian children from their homes and tribal settings to, quote, civilize them in furtherance of assimilation or termination phases of American policy. Plaintiffs assert that the data supporting ICWA's enactment is stale and that this court should therefore override Congress's judgment. That position ignores core separation of powers principles, which require this court to accord respect to Congress, particularly where it has not provided for statutory expiration date. But in any event, ICWA's work is far from done. Indian children today are still removed from their homes and communities far more frequently than non-Indian children, and that is precisely the harm ICWA sought to address. As for, quote, the stability and security of Indian tribes, ICWA directly serves this compelling governmental interest. Congress bears an affirmative duty to advance that interest pursuant to the trust relationship between the United States and the Indian people. To live up to its end of the deal, Congress must act to keep tribes intact, and there can be no question that keeping Indian children with their families and communities is an essential way to do so. The challenged ICWA provisions are carefully tailored to achieve these vital objectives, and their application is tied to a child's connection to a federally recognized tribe, regardless of race. The placement preferences prioritize keeping Indian children connected to their families, tribes, and cultures, but allow courts to deviate from the placement preferences for, quote, good cause. Through these provisions, ICWA recognizes the common sense principle that an Indian household is best equipped to pass on Indian traditions and ensure the ongoing viability of Indian tribes, which advance the government's recognition of tribal sovereignty. Plus, Texas's contention that ICWA should apply to only a handful of states ignores both bedrock principles of federalism and the reality that tribes today span across state lines. ICWA seeks to remedy what Congress recognized as a pervasive Indian child welfare crisis and does so with precision. As such, although the challenge provisions should be reviewed under rational basis, they survive any level of scrutiny the court may impose. Argument 1. ICWA's classifications are political, not racial, and thus subject to rational basis review. A federal statute that draws distinctions on the basis of an individual's connection to a federally recognized tribe, quote, is not directed towards a racial group consisting of, quote, Indians, but is instead political rather than racial in nature, as pointed out in Moncari. The distinction reflects two centuries of precedent recognizing tribes as sovereigns, and that distinction controls the outcome of the equal protection claims in this case. ICWA's definition of Indian child and its placement preferences are political, not racial. Accordingly, rational basis applies to the challenged ICWA provisions. Here, that deferential rational basis standard is readily satisfied. These provisions are rationally designed to protect the best interests of Indian children and to further Congress's trust responsibility to Indians. A. This court has consistently held that federal legislation governing Indian tribes is rooted in political sovereignty, not race. 
For nearly two centuries, this court has held that, quote, Indian tribes are distinct political communities whose authority is not only acknowledged but guaranteed by the United States. Indian tribes hold a unique legal status under federal law and a special relationship with the federal government. In recognition of the necessity of giving uniform protection to Indian tribes, the unique legal status of Indian tribes is grounded explicitly in the Constitution, which grants Congress plenary power to deal with the special problems of the Indians. That authority includes, among other things, the power to regulate commerce with Indian tribes and to make treaties with Indian tribes. These are constitutional powers that relate to Indian tribes as political entities, akin to the constitutional powers to regulate commerce between and among states, and to make treaties with other sovereign nations. By using the classification of Indians in Indian tribes, the Constitution thus, quote, singles Indians out as a proper subject for separate legislation. As the Constitution itself reflects, considering ancestry and drawing political distinctions is hardly unusual. For example, such considerations are a common feature of citizenship laws that the federal government has long accepted and enforced. Indeed, U.S. citizenship itself extends to children born abroad who have at least one parent who is a U.S. citizen. That comports with the practices of many other countries, including Ireland, Greece, Armenia, Israel, Italy, and Poland, which determine citizenship based on descent. The same principle applies to Indian tribes, which enjoy exclusive authority to establish criteria for their own membership. Just as our own legal system looks to descent as a basis for citizenship, so too may Indian tribes. Quote, a tribe's right to define its own membership for tribal purposes has long been recognized as central to its existence as an independent political community. In the nearly 50 years since Mankari, the court has reiterated and never deviated from Mankari's core holding that federal laws regarding Indians draw political, not racial lines. Lower courts, too, have easily and consistently applied this holding, for decades and have rejected challenges like those advanced here. Mankari was correct when decided and has proven durable. B. The challenged ICWA provisions involve political, not racial classifications. Mankari and its progeny squarely govern plaintiffs' equal protection challenges to the ICWA's definition of Indian child and its placement preferences. These provisions draw political, not racial classifications, and are accordingly subject to rational basis review. Quote, Indian Child Under 25 U.S.C. 1903-4, the term Indian Child means, quote, any unmarried person who is under age 18 and is either a member of an Indian tribe or is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe and is the biological child of a member of an Indian tribe. Whether a child meets this definition turns on the child's connection to a federally recognized Indian tribe, a distinct political community, not the child's race. Contrary to plaintiff's arguments, ICWA's terms are not predicated on descent alone. Indeed, they exclude many children who are the descendants of members of tribes but are neither members of nor eligible for membership in a federally recognized tribe. The definition also excludes children who might be considered Indian, but are members of non-federally recognized tribes. In other words, Indian children are not subject to ICWA because they are of Indian race, but because they or their parents are enrolled tribal members. As federal regulations explain, the determination by a tribe of whether a child is a member, whether a child is eligible for membership, or whether a biological parent is a member, is solely within the jurisdiction and authority of the tribe, except as otherwise provided by federal or tribal law. Placement Preferences With respect to adoptive placement, ICWA provides that a preference shall be given in the absence of good cause, to the contrary, with a member of the child's extended family, other members of the Indian child's tribe, 
or other Indian families. Similarly, with respect to placement in any foster care or pre-adoptive placement, a preference shall be given in the absence of good cause to the contrary to a placement with 1. a member of the Indian child's extended family, 2. a foster home licensed, approved, or specified by the Indian child's tribe, 3. an Indian foster home licensed or approved by an authorized non-Indian licensing authority, or 4. an institution for children approved by an Indian tribe or operated by an Indian organization which has a program suitable to meet the Indian child's needs. As with the term Indian child, Congress defined the term Indian used throughout the placement preferences in terms of tribal membership, not race. Section 25 U.S.C. 1903-3 says Indian means any person who is a member of an Indian tribe or who is an Alaska native and a member of a regional corporation as defined in Section 1606 of Title 43. Indeed, because the statute provides first preference to members of a child's extended family, any family member, including a non-Indian family member, comes first in line, regardless of their race or tribal membership. And under Sections 1915a, 2, and 3, preference applies to all members of federally recognized tribes, including those who are of other races, such as the Cherokee freedmen. By the same token, Indians who are not members of a federally recognized Indian tribe receive no placement preference as would-be guardians or adoptive parents unless they are members of the child's extended family, in which case the basis for placement is familial, not racial. Accordingly, ICWA's placement preferences rest on consideration of a child's extended family and links to federally recognized tribes, not race. C. Plaintiffs' attempts to limit Mankari lack merit. Recognizing that their equal protection claims fail under the Mankari precedent and its progeny, plaintiffs seek to engraft various limitations on those cases, reasoning. None is defensible. For example, contrary to plaintiffs' contentions, Mankari is not limited to classifications strictly promoting Indian self-government or involving internal tribal affairs. While Mankari and Fisher involved preferences, quote, directly promoting Indian interests in self-government, the court has made clear that those features are not necessary for Mankari's application. Rather, quote, the principles reaffirmed in Mankari and Fisher point more broadly to the conclusion that federal regulation of Indian affairs is not based upon impermissible classifications, as found in the Antelope decision. Thus, even when confronting regulations unrelated to tribal self-regulation, such as matters of criminal jurisdiction, the court recognized that such regulation is rooted in the unique status of Indians as a separate people with their own political institutions. Nor is Mankari limited to legislation applicable to Indian lands. Indeed, Mankari itself upheld a hiring preference within the BIA that was not geographically bound to Indian lands. Fundamentally, this court has long held that, quote, Congress possesses the broad power of legislating for the protection of the Indians wherever they may be. Plaintiffs attempt to justify their cramped view of Mankari by misreading this court's decisions in Rice v. Cayetano and Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl. Rice was neither an Indian law nor an equal protection case. It involved a challenge under the 15th Amendment to a Hawaii election law that singled out individuals for voting eligibility, quote, solely because of their ancestry or ethnic characteristics. The classification found to be racial in Rice was based purely on ancestry. The state statute explicitly defined Hawaiian only through descent, with no tie to political tribal membership. Here, by contrast, the classification of Indian child turns on the child's or parent's membership or a child's eligibility for membership in a federally recognized tribe. In addition, since Rice involved a state election, it had no opportunity to consider the federal government's authority over Indian affairs, nor its trust responsibilities with respect to Indian tribes. Plaintiff's reliance on adoptive couple is equally unavailing. In dicta, 
this court suggested certain interpretations of ICWA could, quote, raise equal protection concerns. But this court's reasoning limited adoptive couple to its unique circumstances of abandonment without suggesting that ICWA's classifications are facially suspect, and this case does not present any of the questions noted in adoptive couples' dicta. Ultimately, if plaintiff's reading were accepted, it could have sweeping consequences for other Indian-related laws. By way of example, the Major Crimes Act and General Crimes Act allow federal prosecution for crimes by or against Indians, which in plaintiff's view makes the statute so constitutionally suspect that they trigger strict scrutiny. For the foregoing reasons, the challenged ICWA provisions need only satisfy rational basis review. But in any event, they also satisfy strict scrutiny for the reasons explained in the next section. Because the ICWA provisions survive strict scrutiny, as demonstrated below, and are rationally related to fulfilling Congress's trust responsibility, they also easily satisfy rational basis review. 2. Even under strict scrutiny, ICWA's provisions are constitutionally sound. Even if the court were to apply strict scrutiny, ICWA would survive. Strict scrutiny is satisfied where the government has a, quote, strong basis in evidence for its compelling interests, and if the legislative action substantially addresses that interest. Context matters when applying strict scrutiny, as noted in Grutter v. Bollinger. Plaintiffs simply assume that the modern doctrine of strict scrutiny developed in the context of racial discrimination unrelated to Indian affairs applies to ICWA. But strict scrutiny in that sense, which is applied where classifications are especially suspect, makes little sense where the federal government has a specific constitutionally based obligation to Indian tribal members. The very existence of that obligation means that laws treating Indian tribal members differently are not inherently suspect, but rather grounded in the Constitution itself. Strict scrutiny has never before been applied to the government's regulation of Indian affairs, and it is far from clear that its modern form would apply in this context. But even assuming it were to so apply, ICWA is narrowly tailored to further compelling government interests. A. ICWA furthers compelling government interests. By its terms, ICWA furthers at least two compelling government interests. One, protecting the best interests of Indian children. And two, promoting the stability and security of Indian tribes. These interests are rooted in the special relationship between the United States and the Indian tribes and their members, as well as the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligation to address special problems affecting Indian tribes. Congress recognized that the removal of Indian children had historically been a tool to both harm Indian children and to eradicate Indian tribes altogether, and passed ICWA in response. These interests are unquestionably compelling. 1. ICWA furthers the government's compelling interest in protecting the best interests of Indian children. When it enacted ICWA, Congress recognized our nation's grim history of mistreating Indian children and sought to address, quote, shocking disparities in placement rates for Indians and non-Indians. At the time, an estimated 25 to 35 percent of all Indian children had been separated from their families and placed in adoptive homes, foster care, or institutions. Indian Child Welfare Act Proceedings 81 Federal Register. And around 90% of those children were being raised by non-Indians. Many would never see their biological families again. As noted by Christy Rednick in the nation's first family separation policy. Indeed, in 16 states surveyed in 1969, approximately 85% of all Indian children were living in non-Indian homes. By contrast, in 1980, the incidence rate of children nationwide in foster care was 4.4 per 1,000 children, or 0.44%. Thus, Indian children were approximately 50 to 80 times more likely to be removed from their families and tribes 
than other children. Congress found that the separation of large numbers of Indian children from their families and tribes resulted from a long discriminatory history of, quote, abusive child welfare practices, which disregarded essential tribal relations of Indian people and the cultural and social standards prevailing in Indian communities and families. Indeed, Congress considered that one of the most pervasive components of the various assimilation or termination phases of American policy has been the notion that the way to destroy tribal integrity and culture, usually justified as, quote, civilizing Indians, is to remove Indian children from their homes and tribal settings. Congress determined that depriving an Indian child of tribal relations inflicts unique harm on the child, including the loss of his or her personal tribal identity, relationships, cultural heritage, and language, and enacted ICWA to mitigate these harms. Indeed, research addressed below has demonstrated that children removed from their tribal community exhibit elevated levels of substance abuse, mental health struggles, self-injury, and even suicide. Plaintiffs claim that whatever circumstances might have justified ICWA's enactment, they cannot support its continued enforcement today. While ICWA has proven effective, the statute's work is far from finished, and Congress retains a compelling interest in keeping Indian families together for the best interests of the children. Contemporary studies consistently find that, quote, Native American children are still disproportionately more likely to be removed from their homes and communities than other children, and are still unnecessarily removed from their families and placed in non-Indian settings, where the rights of Indian children, their parents, or their tribes were not protected. Some contemporary estimates indicate that Indian parents are up to four times more likely to have their children taken and placed into foster care than their non-Native counterparts. In Oklahoma, Indian children, quote, represented more than 35% of those in foster care, yet Native Americans made up only around 9% of Oklahoma's population as of 2017. In Alaska, 68% of the total number of children in out-of-home care are Alaska Native or American Indian, far more than their roughly 16% of the population. In Nebraska, the percentage of children in foster care who are Native American is four times greater than their percentage of the state population. And in South Dakota, 52% of the children in the state's foster care system are American Indians, and an Indian child is 11 times more likely to be placed in foster care than a white child as of 2017. And I just want to pause there for a second because often when we talk about the history, we are led to believe, we have been, we have been educated to believe that this is all in our past that we're, we've, we've learned our lesson, that we're better now, that we're greater now, that, that the effects of the worst of the worst policies and the worst of the worst programs are over. They're, they're in the past. They don't have bearing on what's happening today, which is what, what the plaintiffs are arguing here, partially, is, you know, those things have been mitigated and they don't have a bearing on the reality of today and and these statistics just point to the exact opposite all of these harms that were perpetrated over decades and, and over centuries they don't just go away when they get embedded in the systems when when those building blocks of our social structures have have embedded and enmeshed within them these harmful white supremacist tendencies, programs, they don't just go away because we recognize them. They, they stay there. They persist. And until we enact things like ICWA, which in, even in effect hasn't eliminated the issue, eliminated the problem, but has improved it, um, or we just dismantle these systems and structures that we have and build new ones with with intent with the goal of of wiping out this white supremacist foundation that 
is immersed in, in so many of our current institutions. As one example, in a case filed by the ACLU in South Dakota on behalf of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, and a class of Indian families, illustrated how state officials continue to ignore ICWA in handling Indian child custody cases. In that case, children were removed from their homes following state court hearings in which parents were not given a copy of the petition accusing them of wrongdoing, were not assigned counsel, and were not permitted to testify, call witnesses, or cross-examine any state employee. The hearings typically lasted fewer than five minutes, some wrapped up in 60 seconds, and the state won 100% of the time. In the absence of ICWA's protections, the experience of plaintiff Madonna Pappen, a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, was typical. After a hearing that lasted less than 60 seconds, the court issued an order stripping the Pappens of custody over their children for at least 60 days. The forced removal caused Ms. Pappen's children to suffer long-lasting emotional and psychological harm, including, to varying degrees, separation anxiety, bedwetting, emotional swings, and suicidal tendencies. According to one 2017 study, Indian children placed for foster care or adoption, many outside their families and tribal communities, reported higher rates than non-Indian adoptees, quote, on all mental health problems measures, for example, substance abuse, mental health, self-injury, and suicide. And this study recognized that Indian children have a number of unique experiences that may distinctly affect their mental health. The report titled Cultural Issues in the Adoption of Indian Children found in part, quote, an environmental factor contributing to higher suicide rates among Indian youth is adoption in which Native American youth are placed in non-Indian families. In short, although ICWA has improved placement rates for Indian children, the interests that prompted Congress to pass ICWA remain compelling today. Number two, ICWA furthers the government's compelling interest in protecting the stability and security of Indian tribes. ICWA also fulfills Congress's broad and enduring trust obligations to Indian tribes. In adopting ICWA, Congress expressly acknowledged that the United States, quote, through statutes, treaties, and the general course of dealing with Indian tribes, has assumed the responsibility for the protection and preservation of Indian tribes and their resources. Pursuant to the trust relationship between the United States and the Indian people, the government has charged itself with moral obligations of the highest responsibility and trust, obligations to which the national honor has been committed. Congress possesses a distinct and compelling interest in discharging its own trust obligations to preserve the stability and integrity of Indian tribes through their members and prospective members. Federal courts have long recognized this interest as compelling. In United States v. Wilgus, for example, the Tenth Circuit considered a Religious Freedom and Restoration Act challenge to the Eagle Act, which generally prohibits possessing eagle feathers, but allows for certain exceptions, including one for tribes. The Tenth Circuit held that the federal government had a compelling interest in the protection of the culture of federally recognized Indian tribes, explaining that this compelling interest arises from the federal government's obligations springing from history and from the text of the Constitution to federally recognize Indian tribes and Congress's obligation of trust to protect the rights and interests of federally recognized tribes and to promote their self-determination. The Tenth Court Circuit explained that this compelling interest allows the federal government to take actions that might otherwise be impermissible. In Wilgus, by impinging on the religious practices of a non-tribal member, and by granting rights to tribal members that non-tribal members do not enjoy. Quote, The protection of this tribal interest is at the core of ICWA, as noted in Holyfield. Congress expressly recognized that nothing is more vital to the continued existence and integrity of Indian tribes than their children, and that tribes are best positioned to preserve Indian culture, traditions, and communities. There can be no greater threat to essential tribal relations and no greater infringement on the right of the tribe to govern themselves 
than to interfere with tribal control over the custody of their children. In short, ICWA furthers the federal government's compelling interests in protecting the best interests of Indian children and promoting Indian tribes. B. ICWA is narrowly tailored to achieve the compelling interests in its, that it furthers. Congress articulated in ICWA a carefully circumscribed definition of Indian child and adopted a minimum prophylactic measure regulating the removal of Indian children from their families and placement of such children in foster or adoptive homes. Both of these provisions are narrowly tailored to achieve the compelling interests outlined above. First, ICWA narrowly defines Indian child to capture a child's connection to a federally recognized tribe, not as a plaintiff's claim, simply as a proxy for race. To the contrary, this definition excludes those people who are descendants of tribe members, but who are not members or eligible for membership in a federally recognized tribe. Canadian Indians are not covered by ICWA. The definition also excludes those Indians who are members of tribes not recognized by the federal government, as those tribes lack the government-to-government -government relationship at the core of Indians' political status. There are approximately 400 tribes in the United States, including many state-recognized tribes, that lack federal recognition, and their children are not protected by ICWA. Similarly, Indian Child excludes individuals who have been disenrolled from their tribes. If the classification were based on race, there would be no such rulings governing any individuals terminated or disenrolled from the category. ICWA's definitions of Indian and Indian Child turn on status relative to a federally recognized tribe and is thus narrowly tailored to the government's compelling interest in fulfilling its trust obligations towards federally recognized tribes regardless of race. Second, ICWA's placement preferences are specifically tailored to address Congress's finding that vague and discriminatory standards had resulted in the failure of administrative and judicial bodies to recognize the cultural and social standards prevailing in Indian communities and families. ICWA's placement preferences respond to this problem head-on, prioritizing placement with an Indian child's family or tribe. ICWA's preferences thus aim to keep Indian children connected to their families, tribes, and culture, consistent with child welfare practices recognized today as the best practices for all children, to focus on strengthening families instead of removing children from families considered unfit. Congress also tailored ICWA to ensure that every case involves an individualized consideration of the child's needs and courts can deviate from the placement preferences whenever good cause exists to do so. ICWA also provides for emergency removal or emergency placement of a child in order to prevent imminent physical damage or harm. The good cause exception ensures that the statute's placement preferences do not control in circumstances in which a child's best interests require a different approach. BIA regulations provide five bases for establishing good cause. One, the request of one or both of the Indian child's parents. Two, the request of the child if the child is of sufficient age and capacity to understand the decision that is being made. Three, the presence of a sibling attachment. Four, the extraordinary physical, mental, or emotional needs of the Indian child. And five, the unavailability of a suitable placement after a determination by the court that a diligent search was conducted. The BIA has further explained that these factors are not exclusive, as there may be extraordinary circumstances where there is good cause to deviate from the placement preferences based on some reason outside of the five specifically listed factors. The final rule says that good cause should be based on one of the five factors, but leaves open the possibility that a court may determine, given the particular facts of an individual case, that there is good cause to deviate from the placement preferences because of some other reason. As Alexandra K. v. Department of Child Safety notes, a state court need not find one of the factors identified in 25 CFR 23132C before it may conclude that there is good cause to deviate from a preferred placement.
The good cause exception thus ensures that the statute is neither over nor under inclusive. It provides a calibrated structure for preserving a child's connections to the Indian community while still permitting departures as the circumstances of a particular case and the best interests of the child may require. Claiming that this exception does nothing to salvage the regime, individual plaintiffs misrepresent regulations they say, quote, prevent state courts from considering ordinary bonding or attachment in evaluating good cause. Individual plaintiffs fail to mention that this limitation applies in any form only to time spent in a non-preferred placement that was made in violation of ICWA. And even as time spent with a family in violation of ICWA, the regulation does not prevent consideration of such time, only sole reliance on that factor. As this court has recognized, the law cannot be applied so as to automatically reward those who obtain custody, whether lawfully or otherwise, and maintain it during any ensuing and protracted litigation. Third, ICWA is tailored to reflect that contrary to plaintiff's assertions, Indians, families, and tribes are best positioned to raise their children, both for the best interests of the children and the stability and well-being of the tribe. As the chief of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw testified in a hearing that led to ICWA's enactment, quote, The chances of Indian survival are significantly reduced if our children, the only real means of the transmission of tribal heritage, are raised in non-Indian homes and denied exposure to the ways of their people. Plaintiffs do not meaningfully rebut the testimony Indian leaders provided to Congress, and they provide no basis to ignore the importance of an Indian household as a means of preserving tribal traditions and culture for all involved. Fourth, ICWA, like nearly all federal laws, appropriately applies uniformly nationwide because a purportedly narrower state-by-state -state focus would be a poor fit that fails to address the problems that led to ICWA's passage. Quote, we therefore think it beyond dispute that Congress intended a uniform national application of ICWA. Texas claims that Congress should have a limited have limited ICWA's requirements to states whose race-based child custody practices supposedly incited the act. But singling out individual states for disparate treatment, quote, imposes substantial federalism costs and differentiates between the states, despite our historic tradition that all the states enjoy equal sovereignty. And as a practical matter, it would make no sense for federal law to consider a child an Indian child if she lived in Oklahoma, but strip away that status if she crossed the border into Texas, for whatever reason and for whatever period of time. And since Indian tribes stretch across state lines, the geographic limitation plaintiffs propose would fracture Indian communities, doing exactly the opposite of what ICWA intended. Congress was not concerned solely with the geography. Rather, it sought to address threats to the integrity and existence of tribes, both on and off reservations. Congress received expert testimony, finding that, quote, Many Indian families move back and forth from a reservation dwelling to border communities or even distant communities. Accordingly, to achieve its specific objectives, ICWA is not limited by geography, but by the relevant individuals it covers, Indian children from federally recognized tribes. Arguing that the ICWA's placement preferences are disconnected from Congress's goal of preventing the removal of children from Indian lands. The individual plaintiff's attempt to cabin Congress's concerns by geography does nothing to suggest, much less demonstrate, overbreadth. Moreover, as a matter of legislative history, Texas is also wrong to suggest that Congress considered placement concerns in only a handful of states. To the contrary, the House Committee on Interior and Insular Affairs found that in 16 states surveyed in 1969, approximately 85% of all Indian children in foster care were living in non-Indian homes. And Texas is no exception to the problems that have plagued other states. According to the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, 
Indian children are, quote, more represented in the Texas child welfare system than their percentage of the general population would indicate, and their outcomes are poorer. As Texas's own authorities recognize, Indian children, both nationally and in Texas, are still being thrust disproportionately into the child welfare system. Fifth, ICWA maintains its narrowly tailored approach because it's not a sweeping mandate across all circumstances, but instead provides a specific exception for any and all circumstances in which continued custody of the child by the parent or Indian custodian is likely to result in serious emotional or physical damage to the child. Texas essentially makes that point, noting that this exception could have been even broader, encompassing children subjected to neglect as well. But ICWA already permits variance from its default preferences in case of neglect under the good cause exception discussed above. Sixth, ICWA appropriately includes Indian families of tribes other than the child's in its preferences scheme. As Judge Dennis recognized, quote, many contemporary tribes descended from larger historical bands and continue to share close relationships in linguistic, cultural, and religious traditions today. One example is the Oseti Sakowin Band, which is located in Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Families of any tribe are thus uniquely positioned to integrate children into Indian cultures and to guide and support a child in connecting to the child's own tribe as well as tribal resources. Finally, ICWA is appropriately tailored to address the structure of Indian families, recognizing that an Indian family includes the child's extended family, a feature the individual plaintiffs ignore. ICWA applies in situations where no Indian family is being broken up, for example, where the tribal member parent is completely absent from the child's life. Congress's conception of family makes sense. Many Indian tribes operate as extended families for the Indian child, such that the child may have scores of, perhaps more than a hundred relatives, who are counted as close, responsible members of the family. And importantly, this extended family often includes non-Indian relatives. As a further illustration, in both the Apache and Navajo languages, the word for mother is the same as the word for aunt, and the word for father is the same as the word for uncle. And in any event, ICWA's good cause provision similarly prioritizes family unity even when a child's biological parents may not be in a position to raise the child. It facilitates placement at the request of one or both of the Indian child's parents, based on the presence of a sibling attachment and pursuant to the extraordinary physical, mental, or emotional needs of the Indian child. Individual plaintiffs may not use a cramped, inapplicable misunderstanding of the word family to undermine the ties that suffuse an Indian tribe. In short, even if strict scrutiny were applicable here, ICWA's definition of Indian child and placement preferences are narrowly tailored to further its compelling interest in protecting Indian children and Indian tribes. Plaintiffs' equal protection challenges should be rejected. Conclusion For all the above reasons, the Court of Appeals' decision rejecting plaintiffs' equal protection challenge should be affirmed. And the Supreme Court has begun hearing arguments in this case, Brackeen v. Holland. Uh, it is not expected to um, send down a ruling on the case until next spring or early summer. I think this case is a very good illustration of a couple of the most challenging things in our society, in our social structure, in our political, economic, and other systems that, that govern our society. Um, one is the longevity of the, the roots of the historic harms that, that have been perpetrated in this country since its founding, even before its founding, the genocides against the Native American people, the genocides against the black enslaved people who were 
forcibly relocated here from Africa. Um, centuries of genocide embed things into a culture that are very, very difficult to remove. Uh, another thing this illustrates very, very well is when things are put in place to attempt to atone for and attempt to repair those harms that are still embedded in our system and attempt to correct them. The pushback is regular. The pushback is powerful. Um, the pushback is, is consistent. This is a, a law from 1978 being challenged in the Supreme Court in 2022. And I think there's there are, there are good reasons to challenge old laws, certainly. Um, but in this case, this is a law that is there to help reconcile an ongoing harm and has partially successfully reconciled in this ongoing harm, but not completely, but is, is getting attacked and getting pushed back by people with various motives, some of which are harmful. So I think this, this case illustrates those really, really tough parts of that, you know, embedded racism and embedded white supremacy very well, both in its ongoing effects and in its attempt to prevent any lasting reparations from being put into place. And we see those things happen over and over again in various ways. So it, it is our job. It's our duty to expose these ongoing white supremacist roots and structures and foundations and impacts and to dismantle them. As Adim the Artist says in, in one of their songs, to uh, dismantle them brick by brick, by hand, together. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can listen to all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And this is Donita Large with the song Reconciliation Sky. This is our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>